Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is the Celtic Soul Podcast. I'm Andrew Millen. And you're all very welcome back to the show. Please hit that subscribe or follow button on your preferred podcast platform so you never miss an episode. You'll find us on Apple, Spotify, Acast and most of the platforms. You'll also find us on Celtic Fanzine TV on YouTube or you can visit our website CelticFanzine.com where you'll find all the podcasts there too. Well, it's two games a week now for Celtic for some time and we're all back travelling so we have struggled to get the main show out on a Friday but we are going to try harder, I promise. And what a guest we have today on the show. Jimmy Brown, drummer and founding member of reggae superstars UB40. A working class kid who conquered the music world with his mates. Thanks to Paddy's Point Pub in Lasagna, Spain for their continued support of the fanzine and also for the sponsorship of this episode of the podcast. If you're a Celtic supporters club or a Celtic minded business who shares our values and would like to sponsor the show or the fanzine, email us at info at and you can also contact us on social media where you'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. All our content is free. We do not put anything behind a paywall or a Patreon. But if you would like to support us, you can visit CelticFanzine.com where you can become a member, subscribe or buy the fanzine, a t-shirt or some of our merchandise. Or you can also donate for the price of a point and we thank you for your continued support. COVID tested is needed now for anyone travelling in and out of the UK when they arrive back in Ireland. But it hasn't stopped the Celtic fans travelling in large numbers from the Emerald Isle as we try to get back to some kind of normality. On the field, the priority is still the SPFL trophy. But we still have a cup final to look forward to this month and European football after Christmas. The fans, Ange and the players are united. And that's a positive, especially with the whole Bernard Higgins saga dragging on as the campaign of resistance grows among the Celtic support to make sure the board don't score another own goal. And it's about time they opened up meaningful dialogue with supporters groups on the issue. Last night was a strange one at Celtic Park 
On paper, it was a meaningless game with both teams knowing which European competition they would be playing in after Christmas. But it turned out to be an excited battle. Celtic's early goal from Scott Welch settled the nerves after Ange had named a team full of fringe players who had little or no competitive game time. 1-0 at half time after Betts failed to convert their chances. The second half was end-to-end at times with plenty of drama. Young Henderson off the bench scores with his first touch within a minute. That's fairy tale stuff. And David Turnbull scored the winner from the penalty spot after the visitors had equalised twice. Ayeti limped off and his replacing Kyogo also limped off, which is a worry. I attended last night's post-match press conference and Lange put one reporter in his place when he asked me about Kyogo and Jota's injuries ahead of the cup final. He told him he did not have a medical degree, which brought chuckles from the gallant members of the Scottish and Spanish press and a red face to the said journalist. Bet his manager Pellegrini, well, he didn't look too happy having lost in Glasgow but Neil Bitten seemed chuffed at himself and his 100% record as captain one game one win but I suppose the changes will be rung in again and I suppose the more familiar faces will be back in the team when we play Motherwell on Sunday at Celtic Park thanks to everyone who popped in to see us in Morphys before the game for Celtic AM and thanks to our guests former Celtic player Bobby Petter Glasgow power Aaron Boyle and to Scott McKay who provided the tunes and the songs. We're back on Sunday with another show. We kick off at midday. And joining me will be William McStay, former Celtic player, former youth team manager, and now one of the chief Celtic scouts. Alternative view editor Matt McGlone will also be along, and political activist and podcaster Tommy Sheridan will also be joining us. So if you're around the Merchant City before the game, please pop in and see us, enjoy a point, and join the conversation. And also... Enjoy some tunes and a few songs from Scott McKay, who will once again be with us. Don't forget to check out our website, CelticFanzine.com, or download a free app for daily news, articles, podcasts, Celtic Fanzine TV, and our online shop. We have a handful of more than 90 minutes, issue 118, the print edition left. The digital edition is always there to download, of course. So if you want to get one of the last copies, please visit the website where you'll be able to buy one. And also, please visit Celtic Fanzine TV and hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode of the stuff we do on that channel. You'll also find all our podcasts there, Talk From The Terrace, Millish Meets and the Grand Old History Podcast. And over the last week, we had Alternative View Editor Matt McGlone, Rail Betters fan Alan McLean and Boys Ultras Ross and James joining us on Talk From The Terrace to discuss all things Celtic while David Potter joined us on the Grand Old History Podcast to pay tribute to the late, great Bertie Ald who incidentally played for Birmingham. Uh, so that would be an in- of interest to Jimmy. And I was listening in from Birmingham. Bertie won a, a League Cup at Birmingham and also played in the first cup final, I believe, as well. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be chatting to UB40 drummer Jimmy Brown. Jimmy is a founding member of the group who became reggae superstars, gigging throughout the world and recording hit after hit and album after album. And they recently released, I think it's the 20th album, Bigger Bag of Rhythm. And UB40, as everyone knows, have had hits both sides of the Atlantic in Britain and America. Jimmy Brown, welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. It's an honour to have you on the show for a chat. I've been a fan of the band since those early days, through watching you on top of the pops and listening to my older brother's records, which I <laughs> was lucky enough to inherit, Jimmy, and I've added yeah. to over the years. 
So how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's uh, The weather's not great, so uh, I'm quite happy to be sitting indoors chatting over Zoom rather than uh, being out there in this terrible weather, but yeah, no, I'm good, you know, just waiting to start work again. Certainly not Jamaica. It really isn't Jamaica, no. Although, I must admit, the inside of my house is nice and tropical, so... Uh, I imagine. Uh, Jimmy, just before we start, um, you've obviously recorded in Jamaica. Uh, I've been there a couple of times myself, with, with a place called The Grill being my favourite place. What's your favourite mm-hmm. place in Jamaica? Well, okay, yeah. Um, I mean, I've spent time in the grill, um, but I remember I stayed once in a, a place called Frankfort, which was just outside of Ocherius. Um, a beautiful old fort that was from back in the uh, the slavery days, I suppose. And it was the beach house to the plantation, um, which is on the hills above the the beach, and. Um, it was uh, it was uh, I remember Winston Churchill, he was an artist, and one of his most famous paintings is of a beach with a palm tree that's hanging over a beach. It's really it's really one of his most famous. And it was this beach, uh, a private beach that I was staying on there. And it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever stayed uh, in Jamaica or anywhere, you know. I mean, Jamaican can be rough in parks, you yeah. know, but this was Absolute paradise, and I'll never forget it. And the people? Well, of course, the people are just, you know, I mean, we've always had a relationship with, you know, uh, the parents of our friends, you know what I mean? And they were always a lot friendlier than any of the English parents ever were, you know. Uh, If you're going to hang around in your mate's house or whatever when you come home from school, you know. So, yeah, you know, we've always had a relationship with the island and it's amazing how much above its weight it punches on yeah. music and lots of other things as well. Sport, for instance. Uh, yeah. It's funny, my everlasting memory um, of Jamaica, the first time I went, was we'd flown through Miami and stayed in Miami for a couple of days where everybody was chasing the dollar. It was really fast, and mm. very money-orientated, very expensive. And then we got to Jamaica and uh, a little old lady picked us, a little old lady picked us up in a taxi to take us to the hotel. It was Montego Bay we were staying for the first days, first couple of days, and she was ta- she was taking us on. The difference the difference in this taxi from the taxi we'd got to the airport in Miami was just night and day, and that was the whole um, experience I had in Jamaica. The people were just um, so welcoming and so they didn't have a lot, but what they had, they were happy mm-hmm. to share, and it was just beautiful. Yeah. It's a constantly exploited island as well, you know. I mean, um, a lot of the local traders get shut down because they built it, you know, because Asians came in and built a shopping mall and all the cruise ship people were going, you know, they were landing in Ocho Rios or whatever and just going to these shopping malls and not giving the local traders a chance and all. They've been heavily exploited over the years uh, and with terrible local politics and and really rough infrastructure. I bet the the journey from the airport to your hotel was a bit hair-raising, I would imagine. Yeah, well, I I was lucky enough, um, when we got there the first time we went, we we went, we booked into an all-inclusive for two days, and I think we left it after about a day because my wife said, I just can't do this. This, I want to see the island. So we ended up travelling around the island. We got a guide when we went to certain places because we were told that, you know, the white face, you know, it would be rough enough. But... 
like it was just it was just magnificent, and the people we met along the way, and we went back a few years later just to, just because we'd seen the other. We went back to just to finish off what we didn't didn't get to see, and you know we went to the other side and went to Peter Tosh's grave and stuff like that, which isn't as touristy as the Bob Marley Trail, but it was wonderful, and the people were just. And I'm still in contact with some of the people, which was. Amazing, but look, I'm not here to talk about my holidays, Jimmy. For first, before we start, I want to get this. <laughs> off, I, I want to get this off my chest. Um, I just want to offer uh, my deepest condolences to you and the band members on uh, Brian Travers, who I was supposed to interview before mm-hmm. he passed away, and um, Astro, who, who passed away recently, and, and two two musicians and, and fellow band members that would have played a massive part in your, in your life for so long. Yeah, well, you know, uh, life throws these surprises at you, doesn't it? Especially when you get older. I imagine I'm a fair bit older than you. Um, and, you know, although that said, you know, the tra- tragedy of it is that these guys were only in their early 60s, you know, which which is still fairly young, isn't it? You know, I'm 64. And uh, you think to yourself, well, you know, I've still got a lot of life left in me, you know. And it's just such a tragedy for that to be quite sure you know I mean with Brian obviously um, we knew you know he was battling uh, cancer for about three years before he eventually succumbed to it and uh, so that wasn't a a shock really you know but it was it's such a tragedy and also he's a massive hole to fill you know um, because of his contribution to the band wasn't just playing saxophone you know, he, he was one of our most prolific lyric writers, you know. There's only a few of us have write lyrics, and he was the main one. Um, and also his charisma on stage, you know. He was constantly people wanted to, to watch him. You know, he was fun to watch on stage and, and kept the, the vibe of the gigs going. And, you know, he was the main man, really, the most charismatic of all the members of the band, more charismatic than any of the singers we've ever had, you know. Um, though he, he's a massive hole and that hole will never be filled, you know. I mean, obviously, we had our problems with Astro in the past and he was working with Ali and um, so that affected us a lot less and uh, and we, we'd already been touring without him. So, you know, it, we, uh, you know we, we managed to replace what we lost with, with Astro, but with Brian, we never will. You know, because he was such an important member of the band, you know. And see, Astro wasn't there from the very beginning. He's not an old mate the way Brian was. But I went to school with Brian, you know. And uh, so did Earl and uh, Ali and, um, uh, and you know, we, we, we were all friends from 11 years old. And that that so that really is it's going to affect you, isn't it? You know, when you've known somebody all your life like that and you've lived out of each other's pockets for a whole lifetime, you know, it's... Uh, Quite everything, but you know, it's also part of life, isn't it? You know, these things happen. Yeah, well, someone said to me recently, we're only on a journey on this on this earth, and certainly Brian's journey was a, a great journey. Yeah, yeah, you know what they say about um, the light burning bright. He certainly burnt his light burned bright. You know, um, to the point where he burnt himself out, I suppose. But uh, he certainly did make an impression. Uh, while he was around, that's for sure. Not, n- not bad for uh, an Irish man. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was always that 
that uh, Irish fieriness that he had, you know, um, that, that spurred him on and made him really a massive creative force, you know, because he wasn't just, like I say, a lyric writer and the most charismatic member of the band and also did all the, uh, wrote all the brass lines. Um, but he was also a fairly prolific artist himself um, and, and did lots of paintings and sculptures and, and towards the end he just accelerated and did loads and loads of work before uh, before he succumbed in the end and you know he, he he was aware of his limited time and and just had to get that creativity out of himself you know wow it's just so positive uh, a positive vibe from uh, from when he got ill to do to do all that um Jimmy as I said earlier now, just in the intro, I, you know, I'd listened to you from an early age and I'd also listened to a lot of the two-tone bands and the attitude, the music and the lyrics would certainly play a part in how I looked at the world as I got older and especially in those formative teenage years. So, Jimmy, take me back to Birmingham and what influenced you growing up and what, you know, what shaped your outlook on life? Well, you know, I mean, it's all about the band, obviously, and... Um, I mean, we wouldn't exist without Birmingham being what it is, a multicultural city, you know. I mean, it was a, a complete melting pot. And the school I went to, my kind of entrance in junior school, which is what they were called in them days, um, that was like you had, you know, you had Arabs, you had um, from the Caribbean, people from the Caribbean, you had a lot of Irish, English working class Asian, you know, Indian, Pakistani. And this is all a big mountain pot. And we all went to school together. And there was no real dominant culture, you know. It was just just so mixed. And to me, that was just about the best education you could possibly have is being brought up in that environment, you know. Um, I, You know, I went to the, uh, the same junior school as, as the bass player, you know. We were born in the same maternity hospital, you know. And uh, that that multicultural, multi-racial environment that we were brought up in has coloured everything we've done since. You know that that was so exciting to us at that time. You know we were we were friends with the first generation of non-white British. Um, obviously, all our mates at school, um, their parents would have come over. From, from wherever, Jamaica, St. Kitts, Barbados, wherever. And they would have then had their kids. And those were the kids that we were our friends at school, you know. We, they were the first generation of black British. And um, that that was a privilege, what can I say, you know. And they've been brought up in Small East, which is an inner city area of Birmingham. Um, you could sit on your doorstep and watch the four corners of the world go by, you know, the first Asian grocery shop I can remember in the 60s was opposite my house, you know, and there used to be a blues three doors down and there was the Irish family on the other side where we played with all the kids. You know, this was the environment that was, uh, and even though there was so much racism around then, we weren't racist and that's, I think, is what developed into sort of anti-racist youth culture. If only we had that today, you know. But in those days, youth culture was anti-racist, you know. And uh, like the first wave of skinheads, for instance, which was in the late 60s, early 70s, um, were, were loved reggae and went to all the reggae dances. And it was only the, the post-punk skinheads 
where they became kind of racist and fascist and, you know, it was, but the real skinheads from the late 60s, they, along with the mods, you know, at that time, they embraced um, reggae and, and, you know, multiculturalism without even thinking about it, you know. So to me, it was such a special time. It was almost like a golden generation. Yeah, and I think UB40 were not just the music, but the band and how it was so multicultural. I think that was so far ahead of its time because I look now, back then, you know, it was only white, white faces on television. Um, mm-hmm. All the presenters were white, all the celebrities were white. Um, and when I look, like I look now, and I was watching an afternoon show yesterday on the TV in Ireland, and there was there was a black female presenter and a white um, male presenter. Now, that wouldn't have happened. Oh, like only, even probably before the lockdown, that wouldn't have happened because the Black Lives Matter has certainly brought um, not only colour but it's brought sexuality and it's brought, you know, like there's racism towards people who are white because of where they're from, be they from Ireland or another country, Welsh or whatever. And I think I think the band back then, especially for us growing up, because, the, you know, I live in a multicultural society now, but back when I was a kid, the only black and Asian people I saw were probably doctors in, in the hospital and there was black nuns mm-hmm. in the town. There wasn't a lot. Mm. So we, we were probably the last white post in Europe really because we didn't really have a lot going economically and then we only we only saw racism coming in here when we had East European immigrants coming in to work and we had African immigrants coming in and some Asian immigrants coming in because of, of conflict so we, we, we became a racist place and I was so lucky that I had the likes of UB40 and the music they had taught me and the lyrics that that UB40 and the two-tone movement had taught me so I could teach my son and he could teach his mates you know, about, you know, this is, you know, this isn't on. Like, and, and to explain what happened to the Irish when they went around the world. So as far as I'm concerned, I thank UB40 and the two-tone bands for, for forming my early teenage years because you were ahead of your time. And I think the, the Black and White Minstrels video really sent sent up what was a, a shocking programme. You know, and when I look, I was looking at an old video the other night, and that came up, and I was explaining it to someone, and they were going, "Wow, they were so far ahead of the time." Yeah, I think that we, you know, we were the pioneering generation in that way. I think, like I said, youth culture then was anti-racist. You know, we're talking late seventies, early eighties. You know, that rock against racism, and you know, those kind of organisations, and you know, they. Uh, uh, and, and I think for a time it worked to some degree. I think they brought laws in in the kind of 80s and 90s where you couldn't be overtly racist in public. It was frowned on. You know, it was not only bad manners, but it, it, it became against the law, really, to, to be just shouting out, you know, racist you know, racist remarks to people, and you know, you could, you, 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 you know, you could get done for it, you know, um, and that meant that. But what what that didn't do was that that didn't get rid of racism. All that did was that it got rid of racism in public discourse. It didn't actually get rid of real racism, which gets passed on in the family. You know, if you're born in a family where it's just normal to to be racist, then you're going to think that's normal. And even though you couldn't say it in public, 
it's still festered. And then when Brexit came along and, you know, people like, you know, and, and UKIP and Nigel Farage and all them kind of idiots, they, you know, they, they made it acceptable for racism to come back out again. And I believe that it's just as racist today, uh, maybe even more so than it was back in our day. It's just, it's, it's, it's more insidious. It's less obvious. But I think it, the cat came out of the bag with Brexit. And I think the majority of people voted Brexit because of foreigners and immigrants, you know. And, and I think now, you know, if you, if you want to, you, you can make an experiment. If you want to go to the local, if you're on Facebook and go to the local page for your area, no matter where you are, in England, I'm talking here. I wouldn't like to say about Ireland, uh, but in England, go anywhere, whether it's a little village or whether it's a big city or whatever, your local Facebook page, and suggest that you you support Black Lives Matter and then see what reaction you get, because I'll guarantee that you will get a load of people, racists, who, you know, uh, who, will, who will just rear up at you. And, that, you know, that's... To me, that means there isn't a lot of progress being made, even though that we felt that we were on the front line of race relations, if you like, you know, where I mean we were just mates, you know, in the end. We were we were hearing our parents talking negatively about black people, for instance, but they were our mates that we were sitting next to at school. So you knew there was a disconnect, because actually mate, that they're talking about, you know. And you could see that, that what they were, they were saying didn't relate to any kind of reality, do you know what I mean? And, I'm, you know, and we learned what rate, how, how racism worked pretty early on because you guarantee I'd walk into a shop with Earl, the bass player, whose parents come from Jamaica, and we would walk into like a sweet shop or a newsagent or whatever, and he would get treated completely differently to the way I got treated. And I could see that a million miles away that, I, you know, they were, oh, you're going to be stealing and stuff. So they're constantly looking at him and ignoring me completely, you know. And that you could just see it, it was so blatant. And we learned these lessons really early on, you know, about how racism works and how it's a lot more subtle than you think, think it is, you know. Just being overtly racist is one thing. And also the way racism can hide in liberalism as well. Liberals being patting you on the back and, and being patronizing and you know, that racism works at all levels of society, and it still does, really. So I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be depressing or anything, but I don't think, despite the fact that we've existed and, you know, and we've been multicultural and multiracial forever, it hasn't really made a lot of difference, I don't think. Yeah, I look, I look at Ireland now, as I said, you know, we were the last week post, but we are reaping the benefits of it now because I'm a massive football fan, and it's all the the Nigerians, kids that come in that are now grabbing the headlines for the Irish international football team. And when I think back to Chris, <laughs> to, to, you know, Chris Houghton making his debut, the first black player to play for Ireland back in, in the late 70s, early 80s, I'm just not sure today. And then one of our greatest ever players, Paul McGrath. You know, this, this is, and now, you know, like it's great for the young people to, to aspire now to see that. Oh, it doesn't matter what colour you are. If you've got talent, you've got talent. And 
like, did, did, yeah. did you ever get caught up in? Because um, I've read so much about. I we were were you into football when you were younger, or was it just the music? But you know, uh, I'm unfortunately, uh, I, I was born uh, in the shadow of St Andrews, which is the Blues ground, Birmingham City. Zulus. And, you know, I'm condemned. I'm, well, I'm condemned to be a supporter for the rest of my life, you know, which is not something I would choose to do. The old man took me when I was, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it, it was uh, not a nice experience. The game was nil-nil, and I didn't really get into football much. But then when you're born in the shadow of the football ground, then you kind of need, you, you, you still take an interest, you know what I mean? Obviously, we hate all Villa supporters because <laughs> even though Brian was a Villa supporter, <laughs> see how that works. Um, and, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've given up on the Blues because we were coming, there's a gypsy curse on the Blues and uh, we'll never do any good. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, the Hooligan crew was called the Zulus. So obviously, you know, which is... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, they were the they were the first the first multiracial hooligans, the Zulus. You know we, that that was always a multiracial organisation. Zulus, they all come from where I was born, Small East. That's where that's Zulu territory, and we knew you know we knew them knew them really well. You know, and they were they were a hard bunch of guys, and they you know quite scary, but. Multiracial, you know, which was obviously significant for Birmingham. You know, that's uh, that's Birmingham all over. You know, but Birmingham's one of the few cities that doesn't come out of a medieval port. It actually is not very old. It's only a couple of hundred years old, and it uh, and it's in the middle of the the country. So you know, in, in ports, you have this to and froing to the rest of the world. You know, when people who live in ports who maybe have migrated in, will still have connections to to home, you know, and whereas with Birmingham, it's kind of, you're all put in the middle of England and it's hard to get on with it, you know, and and we've all had to share a culture together and grow up in the same culture together, you know, whether we were black or white or Arab in Norman's case, you know, Um that was we all shared the same culture, the same, and we all shared the same music, which was regular, and that, that that would bind us together all our lives. You know. Yeah, and you've certainly, uh, you've certainly left a mark on the city, uh, famous sons of the city, because we stayed there when Ireland played Wales a couple of years ago. We made Birmingham our base because it was cheaper to fly in and it was cheaper to stay there. So we 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 went for a couple of days, and we were in a club on on the Sunday night. Small enough kind of eighties kind of club and just having a good night and the very last song was UB forty and the place went absolutely mental. So we knew we knew we were we knew we were in UB forty country. <laughs> yeah, you know, Birmingham City, um, if they ever score, which is rare, but if they do, then they uh, they all chant the beginning to food for thoughts. You know, the saxophone riff. At the start of food for thought, they all start chanting it and clapping, and you know, I mean, you can't, you can't buy that cult, sort of cultural relevance. Yeah, yeah. that has to grow naturally out of something, you know. So I'm, I'm just made up when I hear something like that. Yeah, it's brilliant. I want a tune as well. Um, look, look, where we're on food for thought. To, to just, can you take us back to 
pre-year before the and how the band started and the influences and because it's I, I just remember seeing it in early uh, it might have been a documentary and Brian had, had this big red afro you know, and he wasn't the cool yeah. dude. He wasn't the cool dude, but his anorak and his afro. That year before, he became yeah. the kings of cool. Like, yeah, well, you know, it, it's funny how things happen. You know, we were we're just a bunch of kids. You know, I mean, I remember thinking, I'm never going to get a girlfriend, and it's the end of the world. You know, the way teenagers <laughs> do. You know, um, and I remember all that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we were we were putting a band together. And and we were starting to realise actually we, we were cool. You know, we were just a bunch of like, teenagers with a dead end, really. You know what I mean? It's like Brian was working, as, he, he, he did an apprentice electrician course. So he was working on the building sites, you know, and so was Earl, the bass player. I was working in some office somewhere because I could talk much. And, uh, you know, Robin was apprentice toolmaker. You know, so we were all kind of in had, had a life, but it was a dead end, really. You know, I mean, the prospects of working in a, a factory all your life uh, is not really, you know. Uh, I mean, I remember because I worked in in uh, the Jag, Jaguar um, in Castle Bromwich in Birmingham um, for a couple of years, and I remember walking. I was in the offices and I was walking on the shop floor, massive place, thousands of workers, you know. Uh, they had a press shop, they were, the, you know, they were putting all these Jaguar cars together. And I was walking across the, the floor, and uh, the shop floor, and uh, an old guy beckoned me over and uh, he started coming over and I'm thinking, oh, what's, what's this old bloke one? You know, I mean, he's going to bore me because he's stupid. And the, guy, the old guy came over to me and he said, Get as far away from this place as you possibly can, then don't look back. And that was the best advice I've ever been given. I never knew the guy, and I never met him again afterwards. But he said, "My, please leave this place as soon as you possibly can." You know. But of course, he was dead right. You know. And uh, we were all at that point. You know. Um, and and we thought, well, let's get the band together because it was just a couple of years. After we'd left school, we'd gone into our various ways and then found ourselves sort of coming back together as a gang. And um, we've gone, let's, let's do it. Oh, and the catalyst for it, when we go to see Bob Marley um, in 1976 at the local Odeon, that was after that gig, we've gone, we've got to make a band, we've got to get a band together, you know, because it was so powerful and so moving and, and so exciting to see this guy at his peak, really, before he became even more popular. So he was working hard to make his name, you know. And it was a local audience, and held a couple of thousand people, and it was packed. Third World was supporting, and it was just one of the most amazing gigs we've ever been to. And uh, at that point, we've gone, listen, we've got to get a band together. And uh, none of us could play, of course. You know, we, we hadn't even decided which instrument we were going to we're going to strap on. Um, so, you know, it was a bit of like, let's do it. And and then we, within within a year, we'd written Food for Thought and we were we were being invited on a tour 
by Chrissy Hind, uh, who at the time we had a number one repressing pocket, number one album and number one single um, repressing pocket. And, uh, you know, we, we never looked back from there, really. But by the end of that, sorry, by the end of that, by the end of the tour that we've been invited to, uh, we had the hit with Food for Thought. Food for Thought came out right at the end of that sort of support tour that we did with the Pretenders. And it was a hit record, and that was it. Oh, brilliant. Jimmy, at that time as well, right, um, politics, you know, was politics shaping you? And was it shaping your music? Yeah, it already had done. I mean, I discovered politics when I was at school, you know, um, a, like, you know, a, a sort of trendy kind of left-wing teacher gave me a copy of the Communist Manifesto when I was 15. And so I sat at the back of the bus reading this, didn't really fully understand it, you know, it was a bit boring. Um, but it did trigger a sort of lifelong sort of relationship with politics and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I know we are a political statement just by our racial mix. You know, we don't really have to say anything else politically, but we are. We're all, you know, the uh, Robbins uh, and Ali's dad uh, was a member of the Communist Party at one time. You know, so we're all lefties and influenced by left wing politics and have been. You know, and uh, and I have to say that you know we were anti Thatcher and. And, and of course, we'd be, you know, we're, we're, we're anti Tory. Um, and I believe this, the, the state that we're in now vindicates what we were saying, you know, with the amount of poverty around the inequality, the fact that people can't afford to can't buy a house, you know, and they're paying exorbitant rents and, you know, the, the inflation and, the buying power of the working class has been suppressed and suppressed and has gone down and down, while the growth of the billionaire class has gone out of proportion. You know, all these things, you know, were, were from the Thatcher years and from the Big Bang deregulation of the early 80s, 1984, when they deregulated all the banks and, you know, when Thatcher said, let the managers manage and took away all the union power and left it up to the executives to have all the power and, you know, all that that's culminated in the kind of poverty we see and food banks and, you know, uh, suicides and uh, people can't get a dentist and, you know, all these things that, that make life hard have their roots and we've been vindicated, I think, that if, you know, that, that, that uh, we should have changed direction when, when Blair got in power, but we didn't. He became part of the post-Thatcher neoliberal consensus that, you know, that meant the banks, you know, financialised every aspect of our lives, you know. And this is where we are now, isn't it? And did you, did so, you have you any know, hope with Corbyn when, when Corbyn was, was head of Labour? Yeah, of course I did. It was like, hang on a minute, this, is, this miracle has happened where a decent human being a decent politician, very hard to find, has almost got his hands on the levers of power. And it was an exciting time. We campaigned quite heavily for, for Jeremy, you know, and, and I consider him to be a friend and a decent man. And I think that that's probably the closest we'll ever get to a decent society. And now we're further away than ever. And it's a depressing thought 
But, you know, maybe it will come round again, but I don't think it will in my lifetime. Yeah. We're just nearly, nearly. When we when we look in from the outside hill, um, obviously we are bombarded with British media, and there was certainly a media campaign at all levels, from newspapers, mm-hmm. broadcast media against Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who who I've always thought was a decent decent man, who was attacked for for mm-hmm. you know stuff that was untrue, but he was also attacked from within. His oh, own party. That is, that is. and I, and I think that now the Labour Party. Well, it's not a Labour Party, is it? It's a Tory like party, you know. It's the acceptable face of Tory of uh, concern. It's the true conservatives, really. Because I don't, I don't call Boris Johnson and all his crew. I don't call them conservatives, and I didn't call Thatcher a conservative either, because they don't conserve anything. They have a uh, a scorched earth policy, which completely changes the whole. You know, Thatcher deregulated and made. Everything different. There was no conservation involved, and Johnson isn't. He doesn't conserve anything. He'll throw anything out the window if he needs to. You know, the new conservatives now are people like Starmer, who is promoting himself as a safe pair of hands, and all that saying to me is, I can keep the status quo. That's all he's saying. I can make things more secure and better the way they are. Not. We, but we're in a society that they're voting for Brexit, so they want change. People want change. And we're in a position now where it's Boris Johnson that's offering change and Keir Starmer is offering security, you know, and conservatism and uh, an efficient way of neoliberalism to work, which is not what we want, you know. I mean, it was the same with Trump and um, and Hillary Clinton, where Clinton was offering more of the same, and Trump was offering to change things. And you can see how that can be attractive to people. You know, that people are hungry for change because we've had so many decades of exploitation, and like I said, the bankers financialising every aspect of, of of our lives. You know, and also we had the banking crash. Which still hasn't, they still haven't recovered. You know, most, most, uh, global financial institutions are still insolvent. So, you know, all they've done is patch up things and kick to the can down the road by re, re, uh, rationalizing debt, which is what caused the crash in 2007, 2008. And all they did was made more debt. So that they could, we could carry on, you know, but nothing fundamental has changed about the banking system. And now we've got um, tuition fees and car loans, you know, people don't buy cars anymore. They get a loan for a car, you know, and uh, all these things that most of these won't get paid back. Student loans won't get paid back, not at the level that they think they will. And that's going to cause, and that's bigger than the subprime mortgages that cause the crash in 2007, 2008, you know. So we, we're on the verge, I believe, of another crash. And, uh, you know, there's nobody even looking at it, it seems to me, uh, apart from people like, say, Piketty, for instance, who's a, a very interesting, you know, the French um, economist talking about getting rid of the billionaire class, which is what we definitely have to do, you know. We've got to eat the rich. Yeah, well, in in Ireland, um, we we had the the 
the financial crash, which then in turn, um, the taxpayers had to bail out the banks. Uh, the working class people had mm-hmm. to bail out the banks. And those same banks are now coming after the working class people's houses, which they can't afford because they bought them at exorbitant prices. And um, so mm-hmm. it's it's a vicious circle. But I think there is some change coming in Ireland. I do. I firmly believe that there will be a political change in Ireland for the first time ever, um, because we've always had one or the other, Tweedledum or Tweedledee, which are now in power together. So I, I, I'm for my son's generation. I'm um, I'm positive uh, because things can only get better. As we once heard someone say in England, and they didn't. But I think things can get better here. Yeah, and they didn't. Um, yeah. But, like, I look, I look at, like, UB Forge's success. And um, when I had Paul Heaton and Peter Hooten on, on the podcast, I asked them both a, a question. And I'm going to ask you, Jimmy. Um, Go on. Did fame change you? Well, um, I mean, yeah, obviously. It's got to be, you know, I mean... Uh, for a start, I'm conceited enough to think you might find my opinions interesting, you know. And if I was just some kid working in an office somewhere, <laughs> excuse me, I probably wouldn't be thinking that, you know. So I, I think it's worth I'm I think I'm important enough to be bothered to come onto the podcast and give you my opinion, you know. So obviously that feeds, you know, that's fed into by, you know, the fame and the whatever and the success. But I'm a lucky man, you know. I, 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 I'm still with the same woman that I was with when, before the band even started, that we met in, you know, when we were teenagers, you know. And I've got a, a fantastic family, you know, four beautiful daughters, and they've all got partners and grandkids and whatever. So, you know, to that degree, I haven't changed. You know, the the, the my direction was set before the band even started as far as family is concerned, you know. So, uh, yeah, and they kept my feet on the ground, you know. But that doesn't necessarily came for all of us, you know what I mean? There are, you know, I mean, one of the problems and one of the reasons we ended up with Ali leaving was because he changed, you know, and, uh, you know, and didn't have those family connections and didn't have those things to to keep his feet on the ground, you know. And uh, that... So I'm grateful for that, you know. I'm grateful for the fact that even if the band just ceased to exist tomorrow, I feel I had a successful life because I've got a functioning family, you know, which is not not easy to. I mean, I, I probably would never have been able to do it if I was still working in an office somewhere and hadn't been in a band that made loads and you know could I could afford to do it. But in the end, that's what's going to keep me feet on the ground, I think, and. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth more to me than even being in a band, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and, and Jimmy, another question I asked both of the boys, um, because it's something I, I don't ask football players when I interview them for some reason. Like, it's just because most of the, I suppose, people who've made it in the music industry that I've interviewed, they've come from humble backgrounds. They've come from working class backgrounds. And when I ask them about the fame question, I also ask them about the money question. Did money change it, Jimmy? Uh not really, no. I, I was just really good at spending it, you know. <laughs> I, I'm, I, you know what can I say? We, we had a party, you know, me, me and the missus, you know, we, we, we partied and partied and partied until 
<laughs> to pretty much everything was spent, really, you know. Um, obviously, we don't earn as much as we used to, so we don't have that lavish lifestyle that we did have at one point. Not, I mean, you know, I've still got a house with a swimming pool, let's put it that way. But, you know, we, we would just, you know, at the drop of a hat, go to Bali if we felt like it, you know, and or go, you know, we, yeah, we, we just had the freedom to do whatever we wanted to do. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm crap with money. What can I say? You know, my, my, my dad used to bring his wife back at home uh, worked in the factory all his life and used to give it to me mom and she used to sort out the finances for the family. Um, and pretty much I've kept that tradition going. <laughs> I just, you know, let the missus deal with the, the important stuff, you know, and, sh- and she'll give me my allowance. So, you know. But but it's been documented. Oh, sorry, Sorry, Jimmy, it's been, it's been documented that um, bankruptcy hit members of the band, all the band. So how does that affect you? Well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, there was times when I had to borrow money to pay the bills, you know. Uh, and that was, I mean, let's face it, you know, even Michael Jackson died with, what was it, 400 million in debt, you know, that... The rock star lifestyle needs a constant input of, of finances, you know, and doesn't always get it. You know, I mean, records don't sell like they used to. So you have to time your belt accordingly, you know. Um, I don't feel like, I, I don't feel like um, uh, it, it's always good to be reminded what it's like to not have a lot of money. And we were reminded all of a sudden, you know, we went from being comfortable to having nothing overnight, you know. And then we, we but we slowly clawed our way back. And I think it is good to be reminded, you know, what it's like to live uh, on on meagre income, you know. And uh, that that hasn't, you know, it showed me that I had some really good friends and some great family who helped me out at times when I needed to. And uh, and that all stabilised in the end, but you do remember it, you know, it does scar you, I suppose, to a degree, you know, when you, you're worried about putting food on the table. But also it keeps your feet on the ground as well, doesn't it? And yeah, you're only living the same as millions of others, you know. It's, it's great to hear you saying that you've, you know, good family and friends around you, because when you are uh, in a superstar band, I'm sure there was plenty of Klingons over the years. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm one of these people that I don't have a lot of friends, but the ones I do have are lifelong mates, you know, proper mates. My kids call them uncle and aunt and, you know, uh, they're they're like members of the family, even though we're not blood related, you know. Um, So I I think that I'll put a a lot of store in that, you know. I I think those friendships of have lasted the test of time and I don't need many and I'm not looking for any new friends, you know, and, you know, I'm not out there, you know, socialising or going to parties or, you know, I'm quite happy with things the way they are and uh, it's important, you know. That, but I think you have, to, you have to nurture these things. They can easily go wrong, you know. You have to put an effort into friendships and, and, and an honesty as well. And a trust, and uh, that those are hard to come by. Yeah, I I travelled to see the football with um, some great friends, and you know I know they've got my back, and I've got theirs, and it's very important. And I know I know there's a lot of people that you know, um, 
I've often said, you know, I, I've I've many acquaintances, but few few real good friends, and I think that's true for mm-hmm. most people. You yeah, know? I think that that's definitely, you know, we we know it's the same for my mom and dad. You know, they 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 had great friends, and uh, but not many. You know, and it was they would be regular, and and that there were people that you could, but but it's also a, an unwritten thing, isn't it, that you have a grave mate. But you, you make a sort of unconscious promise never to sort of overburden them, you know, and be, be a, a taker in a relationship, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you have a mate that you know would do anything for you, but he can trust that you're not going to ask him to do everything for, for you, do you know what I mean? You yeah. know, that you, it, it goes, works both ways, if you see what I mean. Yeah, look, you know yourself. When things are good, everyone wants to be your friend. And when things when things are shit, there's not many that you can turn to. But you can turn to good friends. Now, Jimmy, as a teenager, I said earlier on there, you know, two tone and scar. You know, it, like when when it kind of filtered out when the, when the two tone thing filtered out, Jimmy, I started to listen. I started to go back, you know, and, and try and find out more about this this music. Uh, obviously, Bob Marley was the full stop. But after hearing the first Labour of Love album back in 83, I searched out those original artists that used had covered uh, second-hand record shops and borrowing records and, you know, going to jumble sales. And, and you'd be surprised what you could pick up. But one of, one of the singers that I started listening to back then was Ken Booth. And I finally got to see him about 10 years ago in London. I flew over with me, one of my best pals, Baz, with no tickets. We bummed our way in. We got to the door. And luckily enough, we knew the promoter. He didn't know us, but we knew him and we kind of, we got him to the door and we told him our story and he let us in and it was, it was down in Camden and it was the most, one of the most amazing gigs I was ever at with this man. But you've recorded with him and um, tell me a bit about Ken Booth and the other legends that you've recorded with. Yeah, well, you know, that's another thing, you know, I mean, I remember me talking about the Bob Marley gig that we all went to. That was in 1976, you know, and that was, at that time, we were big Reggae fans and obviously Ken Booth, actually Ken Booth was the crossover artist because he'd had quite big hits in England with uh, Everything I Own and um, someone else that I can't remember at the moment. Um, Crying Over You, that was the other one. What a that tune. was the two big, well, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So we had, you know, Ken Ken Booth was a crossover artist. He'd already made his name in the in the pop charts um, long time before uh, um, Steel Pulse did later on, having the first reggae album in the charts. We had the Earth Revolution, which was like 1978 or whatever. But we're talking early 70s here uh, uh, and mid 70s because we saw Bob Marley in 1976, and we were already fans. These were our heroes, people like Gregory Isaacs, Dennis Brown, Freddie McGregor, um, <clears throat> John Holt was the, the king, you know. And these people were, they were gods to us, you know. They, we looked up to them the way I suppose some people look up to us now, you know. But they were gods to us. And uh, we, the idea that, you know, we were a bunch of kids from inner city Birmingham who had a dream to be in a reggae band and then became the biggest reggae band in the world and then had an opportunity to record with all their heroes. And, you know, it's a, 
I mean, if it was a book, you wouldn't believe it, you know. It, 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 it would be too fantastic a story for you to believe. But, we, get, you know, for us, we just think we're the luckiest people that ever walked the planet, that we've had all this happen to us, you know, that we actually were in the same recording studio as Gregory Isaacs and John Holt and these legends, and they were talking to us like we were friends, you know. It was Sly and Robbie. You know, we know Sly and Robbie really well now, but they were were absolute heroes to us. And now they're mates, you know. So, I mean, what what an incredible journey that is. You know, I I always pinch myself every single day that that we've been so lucky. We still are, really. We're still working with great artists, you know. And um, we we were just working with that inner circle on Bigger Better Rhythm. Magic. You know, and uh, uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. These people are like legends. You know, we were just on a Zoom with Shakademus and Pius a couple of weeks ago, um, talking like old mates, you know. And then before that, we had Freddie McGregor on, on a Zoom broadcasting. You know, it was a loving, you know, for a couple of hours. You know, I mean, we're the luckiest people who ever walked the planet. And I've always reminded myself of that. And uh, it's just, like a dream come true literally a dream come true I've got, I, I got goose pimples now when you were mentioning some of the artists and I'm hearing the songs in, in the back because uh, they, like it's you know they're so far away on the stage and um, as you before you were and especially when you had the height of your fame I remember going to see you outdoor concerts and you know you'd be back of a football stadium and J- Jimmy Jimmy's a dot on the stage and now I'm getting to speak to him but he's also telling <laughs> yeah. me about his his musical heroes, which is which is which is amazing. But like that that career took you like so many albums, but it took you all over the world. And when I'm looking here at some of my notes, you know, it's like early pub gigs grew into playing behind the Iron Curtain, you know, from reading the Communist Manifesto on the back of the bus, the Nelson Mandela Bertie <laughs> concerts, you know, um. Like there's so many, I've so many memories. I remember when Band Aid came out and that, and and yourselves and the Scan the Reggae bands brought out Starvation. You know what a song, and that that that, yeah. that that song sums up, you know, the multicultural Birmingham really, doesn't it? Even though it was wrote by Jamaicans, because you know what are you black, white, red, or an Indian? You know this just sums it up, and just just give me some highlights of you know those early gigs and the big gigs and. Just keep me keep me entertained here and keep the listeners entertained. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we've had a few. We've covered back such a long career that's gone kind of like this that we've got quite a few highlights, you know. Um, we, uh, touring in America where we were playing Madison Square Garden, sold out while we had a number one single and number one album in America. That is, you know, that was, I mean, I remember Madison Square Garden from all the boxing matches back in the 60s, um, black and white, fuzzy, but it was a, a, a legendary venue. You still know, is. Uh, and it still is, absolutely, it's a legendary venue. And to fill that, you know, and have a number one album, one number one single in America, you, you're there, aren't you? You've made it, you know. Uh, so that was a highlight. I mean, it was a highlight when we had our first hit with True to Thor, you know, when it turned out we were top five. Obviously, our lives changed at that moment, you know, and and that that was a highlight as well. But then later on, we got things like uh, doing the biggest outdoor shows ever in South Africa, just after 
they dropped the cultural boycott. We were one of the first bands to go over and, you know, play, play to South Africans. Um, 100,000 people we played to over two nights. Um, they, they'd adopted sing our own song as like the. I the was just thinking about that in my head. You know, that was, how can you imagine? We've got 50,000 South Africans singing, sing our own song back at us. You know, I mean, you, you, you can't you can't buy that. You know, that was just an incredible, incredible experience. And I think we still hold the record for the biggest live gig ever staged in in South Africa. I think you two may have beat may have beaten us, but uh, maybe not. But you know, and also we did uh, there, there was we did a tour of the Polynesia, which was absolutely incredible. Played islands like Tahiti, Fiji. Uh, New Caledonia and, you know, doing all those islands. And it was paradise, you know. We were touring in paradise and thousands of people were turning up because they all knew our music because all the island, uh, islands adopted reggae very early on as their music. And we were just massive amongst Polynesians and obviously been the Maoris in New Zealand and, you know, and just be, to be able to do that, go as far as you can without coming back on yourself, you know, um, and playing gigs in front of 20,000 people, you know, it's, you know, Samoa, we did their, their um, uh, 50 years of independence, Samoa, and you've got 20,000 people all singing your songs. You know, and that, that just, it's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal to be part of that, you know, and we just... The luckiest bastards who ever lived. Really, and, and like when you when you spoke about South Africa there and the gig, I remember buying the seven-inch single. Uh, I still have it, and um, I, I got goosebumps there because um, as a teenager growing up, I remember reading you know stuff about Mandela and that because when you go to concerts back in the eighties, there was always people giving out pamphlets outside and about politics and that. And when when Jerry Damos you know wrote Free Nelson Mandela, that kind of that put him in because we never heard of him before. You know, we were kids, and then for this great man to become president of his country, and um, to to you know, for for the likes of yourselves, a band that had supported, you know, the you know the, the South African people when they were being oppressed, that must have been you know some buzz. Like I can imagine the sound check, Jimmy, that day. Like you know, when you're looking out at this empty place, and then it's going to be full. Like it must have been. <laughs> it just must have been amazing, wasn't well, it? We cracked ourselves, that's for sure. Do you know what I mean? When you think about, you know, when every, all them faces looking at you, you know, sometimes, yeah. I mean, in the early days, because we, I mean, we, we took off pretty quick, you know. We, we did about 30 pub gigs and then we did the Pretenders Tour, which which went up, you know, that was like colleges and theatres. and So that was like a couple of thousand, you know. So that was big. For us, and we never kind of looked back after that. You know, we we immediately after we finished the Pretenders tour, we booked our own tour in exactly the same venues uh, because we had a hit record, and uh, and went back and did them ourselves, and um, and we've done some, you know, and then we were doing something like in 1981, we were doing a thing called Pink Pop, which was in Holland, which was at like 120,000 people were. We're looking at us, you know, and th- these th- these things are quite scary for uh, for anyone, you know. But we were we were novices, 
you know, we weren't very good at our at playing at the time, you know, we hadn't done our apprenticeship really and we're, we're thrust in front of these big audiences. That's quite hard to deal with, you know, and um, probably that's where uh, some some bands get their drinking habits from, just a bit of Dutch courage yeah. before they go on stage, you know, because get, then they get carried away. But, you know, by the time we got to South Africa and uh, we, we were doing that massive show, it was... We were ready for it, I think, and we really fully appreciated that. You know, you felt you were rubbing shoulders with history at that moment. You know, you felt you were part of of some kind of progress. You know, which was, I mean, I don't, I don't overemphasize. I, I don't believe we we made you know we had any influence or changed the world in any way, or, or and I don't think you know music will not make anybody's life life um, politically better. It might make you better just listening to it, but politically it's not going to really achieve much except just moaning, really. And we're good at moaning, you know. And, uh, and uh, But I think people appreciate that, you know. It's nice sometimes oh, to relate. My, my political thinking, Jimmy, has certainly been influenced by music, certainly, especially the teenage well, years. Yeah, but that's only preaching this to, to the converted, really, isn't well, it? Well, well it know, wasn't back then. Well, okay. Well, you know, I was the exception to the rule, but I, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it, it, you, you're not, and I, I kind of, you know, you weren't like a, a racist kind of reactionary, you know, national front. We had the national front back in them days, which was like, we were lucky we didn't have that. You know. No, you didn't need them, no, did you? You know, no. I mean, in the end, you, you didn't have, you, there wasn't a lot of immigration in the end, you know. I, it was only like you said. It was only later with you know from Nigerians and you know that, that uh, Ireland really experienced that. Did you find out, did, Jimmy? Did you uh, did you find them um, like I've always found the snobbery in music with certain bands and people who follow certain bands. Um, now I don't know if you ever felt that as as being a superstar in, in a reggae band, but I like. You before you was sprayed on the walls in the council estate I grew up in, you know, many many miles away from Birmingham, as was Madness and the Specials and and the, the UK subs and the punk bands and that. And I have great memories of seeing because you would see something sprayed on the wall and, and ask, well, who are they? So you would go home and delve through yeah. the, your brother's records to, to find them. But I always found with UB40 oh. that. You know, we were kind of looked down on by some people because we were UB40 fans. And there's a band in Dublin uh-huh. from Finglas um, called Aslan. Now, they didn't make it to the heights of um, UB40. But Brian is from Finglas. Um, and they're a wonderful <laughs> band and wonderful lyrics and working class. But I always found with them as well that their fans will look down. People look down the nose at them. Oh, I wouldn't go see Aslan because, you know, there'll be a rough crowd there, you know. And uh, like, go, well, you're not really going to see who's in the crowd, you're going to see the band, you know, and I always found that. Did you ever find that, being from working class roots, within the music industry, at a higher level, that there was snobbery? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are a blue-collar band, without a doubt, you know, that our main audience is a blue-collar audience, you know, we, uh, you know, we're not kind of arty, arty kind of, you know, we don't do indie, we don't do that kind of thing, we're just a basic entertaining blue-collar band, you know, and, and we've always been aware of that, you know. We're not afraid of doing commercial 
music, you know, it, it, you know, we we don't talk ourselves out of it. You know, we're not a bedsit band, you know, uh, where you could sit sit and listen to us and slash your wrists. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like um, I don't know. Uh, you know that sort of Leonard Cohen kind of depressing, the Joan Army trading kind. You know we weren't like that. We were an entertaining band. We were a band that comes from a culture where you get dressed up on a Friday and Saturday night and go out, you know, and go out and listen to dance music or whatever, and and try and find a girl or whatever, you know. And that's that's the tradition we're part of. And I suppose we were definitely looked down on uh, by the more middle class sort of pseudo-intellectual sort of rock-think aspects of the music uh, music media, you know. The ones that are into indie stuff and artist stuff, and that's not our thing and never will be our thing. So, yeah, there is, uh, there is stuff, but, you know, it, it doesn't bother us, you know. In the end, we're, we've had such success that we, we're not going to worry about a few detractors, you know what I mean, that... that uh, no significance to us. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. Um, like how the music press judge some people. Uh, Paolo Natini, who's a, who's a, who's a big star now, and, and I've seen Paolo in in open air places and smaller venues. When you're starting up, I found Paolo <laughs> Natini by mistake. I bought Select magazine. They were giving away a free CD, and the jam was on the CD. So I said, "Oh, that's looks a couple of bands I know on that." <laughs> Picked it up in the news agents yeah. coming back from work. Stuck it on in the car. Got home and said to me, wife, there's this Italian guy on this CD. I says, you got to hear him. He's brilliant. So I took the CD into the house and I played it, this Paolo Natini song. Now, I didn't know Paolo was a Celtic fan from Paisley in Scotland. I just thought the name exactly. was Italian. Yeah. I was never heard before. And it was off his first yeah. album. So I checked out his first album, slated by the press, slated by the music press. Checked out his second album, which was brilliant, I thought. Slated by the press, you know. Then all of a sudden, Paolo was playing stadiums. He's big time. He brings out his Toad album, and all of a time, all of a sudden, he's brilliant. And uh, you know, he's mm. he's the same journalist that have been slating him. You know, they now think he's great because he's he's made the big time, and that just kind of that pissed me off. And I was delighted I was there for this Italian bloke from Paisley. His mum and dad own a fish shop, fish and chip shop, close to where St Mirren play. So, uh, you know, a place to pop in for, for, for lunch and pound and things. Should be, but because he didn't fit the, the mould of the rock star, and, you know, they slated him until he was filling those stadiums. Yeah, no, I think the quality of journalism is dire anyway. I mean, across the board, with any kind of journalism, it's not like it used to be, you know. Uh, people do well, most of their journalism on, online now, don't they? They just Google it. And then make a story out of it, you know. And uh, and I've, I've never really had much respect for the music press, uh, and you know, don't really take any notice of them, you know. I mean, I, I, me personally, I know some people. Brian used to get upset when he, we got bad reviews, but it never used to bother me because in the end, I know when we've done a good gig, and if I get a bad review for what I know to be a good gig then I ignored the bad review, you know, because that's just down to them. I was there at the gig. I know how well we went down, and I know what the audience were like. So if somebody says it was a bad show, that's their problem, not my problem, you know. So I never really took any notice of what the, what the press say, you know, and I never have done and never will do, because in the end, it's about bums on seats, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I don't take it for granted. I still feel 
you know, sometimes the audience are cheering and I'm still looking behind me to see who's walked on, you know, and, and you realise, God, this is for us, you know what I mean? This is what the, and this was something that happened very early on in our careers, you know, where the audience would be going wild and we'd be thinking, who's, the, who's just walked on, you know? This, and, and it takes a while for you to accept that. You know what I mean? It takes a while for you to realise, yeah, it is for you, and you might as well enjoy it instead of looking for a reason why you shouldn't, you know. So that's that, I learned to do that a long time ago, and that's the most important thing in the end, is how well the audience responds to, to what you're doing. And we've always had great gigs. We, we have, our gigs are a party. If, you know, if you haven't got a sore throat from singing and a sore feet from dancing, then we haven't done our job, you know. And it's not about talking about politics or, or you know, trying to, trying to raise anybody's consciousness. It's literally about having a good time and going home feeling satisfied, you know, going home feeling better than you did when you came. You know? And that's our job is to uplift people. And, uh, and while we still do that, then that's all I'm bothered about, you know. Yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to see the band on, on a number of times, and uh, that's the way I've always, I've always left. I've always left sweating. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was, I was a lot uh, thinner then, I suppose, back in some of the early gigs. But, but mm-hmm. my favourites that stick out. Um, I, I remember the second Labour Love album coming out, and I said, "This is going to open up, you know, people's minds to you know these Jamaican singers now because you before you've done another." Labour Love album and I remember seeing I think it was the point album he just played uh, in Dublin and that was one of the you know to, to hear that album to hear you know reggae fans performing these songs this was this was this was working class theatre to me this was amazing and, and and it's funny you also mentioned Shaka Demos there and I remember them supporting you you know one of the tours so like, I have so many members of UB40 um yeah. And I, I can't have you on without mentioning me nephew, me nephew who's, who's a big man now, but he used to come up to me mum's house with a monkey, a cuddly monkey, and a UB40 video, and he used to call you Ooh R40, and my mother used to put him in front yeah. of the telly, and he would watch the gig from start to finish, and this was every day. This he, he didn't want cartoons, he didn't want, and he still, he, I don't think he still has monkey, but I think he might still have the video. So Robbie, if you're listening, and I know you will be. I had to get you in, um, and you're probably pissed off um, being asked this because it's you know it's been well publicised the departure of Ali Forst and then Astra and Mickey from the band. Now, mm-hmm. if you don't want to speak about it, that's fine. But from our point of view as fans, you know, this is this is upsetting for us, you know, as mm-hmm. it is for the band because. We've been on this journey with you, and we're not like the media or the people who want to write bad things. You know, I've seen I've seen Ali after the band. I seen him at a small gig in Spain when he was doing his solo stuff, an open air gig, and a, and a wonderful gig as well. Um, but uh, like, it does hurt us, like you know, and like, mm-hmm. and I'm, and I'm sure it has split fans because it's like when there's you know when there's a divorce. You know, the, the, you know, some people side with the with the wife, and some people side with the husband. And I think there's a bit yeah. of that with this, is there? But you probably don't want to talk about it. No, I don't mind talking about it. it I mean, I, I'm not, to a degree, you're right, but not not that much, really. In the end, it, it didn't. I mean, some some fans did go go over to 
follow Ali. But really, actually, the majority stayed stayed with us. You know that we were. You know, we it really hasn't. I mean, we're talking. I mean, it's 2008 this happened, so we're talking 12 years ago. You know, um, and it really didn't make that much difference. You know that we we were still doing. British sell out British tours. I mean, obviously, we're not as big now as we were in our peak. But then records don't sell in the same way that they used to. It's a different business now. But we're still going strong, you know. In 2019, we did 120 shows. That's a lot of gigs to do in one year, you know. And uh, it hadn't, didn't really make that much difference. And I feel that the majority of the fans stayed with the band. and. Uh, and because there's an ethos with the band, you know, we were always a bunch of mates that got together and made music together and had the chemistry to create something that didn't sound like anybody else, you know. So that's still there. I mean, there are six original members to UB40 who go back to when we were 11 years old together. Uh, we went to school together and obviously uh, we knew Robin because he was Ali's brother and we used to go to Ali's house when we were 11, 12 years old and hang out there. And, uh, and we used to go to Norman's house because he lived opposite the school. And we'd go over and smoke in his house in the lunch times. And, you know, so this is all, there were six of us that, that, that knew each other from that very early age. And of those six, there are, there, there, when Ali left, there were still five of us together as UB40. So, you know, and like I said, Brian's the lyric writer and always does the beelines, I always do the drums. You know, we were a proper band and that that band was still there even though we lost our lead singer. Bit like a football team, you know. You lose your striker, but, you know, and the fans aren't happy about it because he's a great striker. But then you get another striker in and when they start scoring a few goals, then the fans were warm to the new striker, you know, and that's what happened when we got Dunk involved because he was still part of the gang, you know, he was in my class at school. So we weren't going a million miles away from where we originally were, you know. So we it didn't really affect us that much, to be honest, when Ali left. The only problem we have, I mean, we, we wished him luck, you know, it was up to him. I mean, obviously we weren't happy about it, but he's entitled to leave and go solo if he wants to. And that's what he did, you know. Our only problem is when he started using the name UB40 again because he'd left the band and we're not happy with him advertising his gigs as UB40 because it's not. He left UB40 a long time ago and there's no musicians on stage that were anything to do with UB40. So we believe that that's a lie, you know, and we've been pursuing him in the courts ever since, but it's an expensive and long-winded game to do that. But, you know, we, we wish him well with his own career, but he shouldn't be using the name of the band that he left in 2008. And didn't he didn't use the, the name of the band to start up with. He used his own name. But because he, he couldn't sell gigs under his own name, he started using UB40's name because that's the, the name that sells tickets in the end, you know. And that's our beef with him, you know, I mean, he slaps us up, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the media and plays the media game a bit. You know, when you air your dirty leaning in public, they love that in the media. 
you know. And we've tried our hardest not to respond to that because you're just keeping it alive, you know. Just let it be yesterday's cheap paper and, and let people forget it, you know, and don't get into this sort of slanging match um, in the media, which they love and is not, it was that will only do us harm, you know. And so in the end, you know, we wanted to stop using the name and we're pursuing him in the courts to do that. But apart from that, we wish him luck, you know, with his, with his career. And uh, but don't call yourself UB40 because you're not. You know, and that's our stance. That's where we stand with, with the whole thing. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for letting me uh, get an insight into that just for, for our listeners. Um, the, during the lockdown, Mickey, you have been absolutely fantastic to the fans with the Sunday night zoom-ins. Um, something that yeah. I think I think I meant a lot to a lot of the fans and there was a lot of people going through, you know, mental torture being you know, not being able to go for a point or not being able to go to football and that. And this was this was something to look forward to for for fans. So fair play just for doing that. Yeah. Yeah, we we love it. We um I mean at first it was a bit like weird. I mean we, it goes on for two hours. Um and you think to yourself, are you gonna fill two hours? You know, but Easy. it's we got into this thing where we got guests coming on and that was just absolutely fantastic to know. We had uh um, Winston Francis was one of the first guests, the original Mr. Fixit, um, telling us tales of when he was recording and had Bob Marley and uh, and the rest of the whales doing backing vocals on his on his records and just just all the stories of all the different great artists, John Holtz and you know uh, Gregory Isaacs and people like that. You know he had stories for all of them, and then. And that became like a, a regular thing every week then. We started to enjoy it, you know, and think, wow, this is fun. We're meeting our heroes, you know, and uh, and and fans are loving it. You know, we're getting tens of thousands, 50, 100,000 people watching, you know. And, um, the, uh, yeah, and, and we just went on from there. And we've had all, we had um, Black Hero, a young guy from Jamaica who's on Bigger Bagger Rhythm. Um, and... Uh, uh, um, who else we've had on? Like I said, Shackadimus and Flyers, Freddie McGregor we've had on. We had um, Inner Circle on. You know, th- there are that many we've had on uh, over the year because we did it. For, we, I mean, I think we're on something like, I don't know, 60 broadcasts that we've done, uh, which obviously it's a lot, isn't it? We yeah. do, that's every week for over a year, you know. That's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed it, and we're still doing them, but we're not doing them quite as regularly as we were now that you know lockdown isn't with us anymore. There's a pub's Although, open. Who knows? It could, it could return, couldn't it? You know, <sighs> don't we say don't that. know, do we? Don't say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you don't know, do you? You know, Jimmy. I mean, been... it could it could happen. Jimmy, please not, please don't say that. I'm in good form now after chatting to you. Uh, Jimmy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I just want to say that I bought the new album uh, and the best of luck with it. I'm still a believer in uh, vinyl and CDs uh, because I, I, I know the bands get screwed on Spotify and that because they get very little for putting out um, the stuff. They get very, they don't get paid too well. And I know now how the music industry works. It's all about gigs now. So I can't wait to get back to see You'll be 40 in the flesh. Yeah, we can't, we can't wait to get up there on stage and do what we do, you know. We've been doing it 40 years and it's wow. a real uh, real loss not being able to get up there and do it, you know. So, soon as possible, really. Early part of next year. 
I can't wait, song. Jimmy. You, you haven't aged a bit. You still, you still look very young. You must be taking the the Cliff Richard uh, pseudo cream and rubbing on the face or something, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want any cream the Cliff Richard. No, I'm not going to make that joke. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that does, that, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it keeps, it keeps you young. Oh, God bless you, my man. Listen, thanks very much and the best wishes to the band and your family and your close friends and thank you so much. This means so much to get you on the podcast because uh, we don't have the big budgets like the others. So uh, we'll buy you a drink when we see you as a thank you. Brilliant. Talking to Holder to that. Yeah, I want to give you some Dublin. Oh, you're more than welcome to one or two. Thank you so okay, much. brilliant. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. What can I say? I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks to Jimmy for joining us for a chat. He and his band UB40 have been on some rock and roll journey. The highs, the lows, the breakups. Special shout out to our producer Ron McQuillan and to Daniel Farker for all the work this week on both the podcast and Celtic Fanzine TV. And to Walshy, our cameraman and editor of the Celtic AM show. Well folks, that's it for another episode of the Celtic Soul podcast. Thank you so much for listening and staying with us. I hope you enjoyed Jimmy's interview as much as I did while I chatted to him. Don't forget, we're back in in Morphy's on Sunday for our pre-match show, Celtic AM, when Matt McGlone, Tommy Sheridan and Willie McStay will be my guests. Scott McKay will be providing the music and song. Kick-off is 12, final whistle is 2, and that'll take, give us an hour to get up the road to see Celtic take on Motherwell in that crucial clash at 3pm. So, as I said, I hope to see a few of you there in Morphy's for a bit of a chat and some song. So it's the weekend, folks. Stay safe, keep the faith, and we will play out with UB40 Message of Love featuring House of Sham from their latest album, Bigger Bagger Rhythm.
fuck the lion order We fake you the never we falter We love and respect, we prosper Now is the time for emancipation Strictly from segregation Jalabon from creation Unity now, no hesitation What you do in life is all about your choices Smart decision, satisfaction guaranteed You stand in, hold your ground, you make your commitment So don't be idolizing fools, liars and cheats No way, so don't be idolizing fools, liars and cheats This is the message of love Sending you blessings from our heart This is a Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 